This is KHOI Story City Aves, and you are listening to I Am Able Iowa, where we discuss ability and disability. I'm Anna Magnuson, your host for today, and Daniel Hedendorf and Meredith Franklin, our co-hosts, are with us through the power of Zoom. Now, I have a question to get us kicked off. So have you ever thought about running for office? And if so, what would you run for and why? Who wants to kick start? Let's let Daniel start. Oh, boy. The only thing I can think of is running for my life. Um, (laughs) I'm not always one for the body politic just because I feel like my own views do not always mesh with that of the general public. I also think that, um, unfortunately, despite all of the progress we're trying to make on this show, there's still kind of a negative perception that comes from running for a public office when you have a mental disability. So I feel like it would have to be a few years until something truly can uh, happen in that end. Then I just don't like being judged. Hmm. There's a lot of judgment that comes with being in politics. That's for sure. Yeah. Your space is no longer your own. Um, I actually, well, I didn't, I wasn't part of the school board where um, many years ago, before we moved to France, we lived in Utah and um, I was pretty active with my kids' school and I wasn't on the school board, but I was part of a steering committee and I really enjoy that kind of work. I thought of running for office, but honestly, who's got the time? Mm. So, you know, I've got lots of other things going on, um, but I definitely respect people who are willing, like Daniel said, to put themselves out there for that kind of scrutiny that's pretty intense you really i think have to want it depending on you know of course the office but yeah yeah what about you anna well i always wanted to be run for president when i was little but because i wasn't born in this country it's an impossible task now let's not even talk about all the scandals things i've done in my life that would prevent me from running for office Ah. anyway so you know it's not like i'm like oh i can't do it because of that reason there are many other reasons my friends but for all of those who run for public office thank you for uh, serving the community, and that helps us introduce our guest. So, Daniel, would you introduce our guest? Certainly. After graduating from Okaboji High School in 2004, our guest, Alex Waters, was excited to begin the next stage of his life by attending Morningside University. However, in September of 2004, Waters had an accident that fractured his C5 vertebrae, leaving him paralyzed from the chest down. In the fall of 2005, Alex Waters returned to Morningside University and studied political science before pursuing his master's in negotiation and dispute resolution from Creighton University. Following that, he interned in Washington, D.C. at the U.S. Department of Education in conjunction with the American Association of People with Disabilities as a part of the communication and outreach team. Once returning to Iowa, he worked for Organizing for America, the re-election organization for then-President Barack Obama. In 2014, he ran for Woodbury County Board of Supervisors but lost. Undeterred, in 2016, there became a vacancy on the city council, and through an appointment and interview process, Alex was appointed in February of 2016. He would then go on to win an election outright in November 2016, and has held that office since. In addition to his public service, Alex has worked at Morningside University since 2013. Throughout his tenure at Morningside, he has taught an introductory course on negotiation and dispute resolution, coached a mediation team, worked as a first-year advisor, and currently serves as the Director of Talent and Community Engagement. Alex is a motivational speaker, elected official, and activist. Welcome to the show, Alex. 
Hey, thank you so much. I appreciate the introduction and um, I'm excited to be here, excited for the conversation and to, to get to chat with all of you this morning. I'm looking forward to it for sure. So we learned a little bit about uh, from Daniel your, from your intro, but tell us more. What do you want our listeners to know about you that's not in your bio? Yeah. Well, yeah, I was going to say, how do you boil your life down to a 30-second intro? That's for sure. Well, there's a lot more to the story, let me tell you. Um, I mean, a lot more to the story that we'll dive into, whether we're talking about my accident, the struggles since then, but also the opportunities that have been before me, some of the cool things that I've got to do along the way. Um, and then some of the advocacy, like you said, some of the things that I'm working on, not only in the disabled community, but also um, right there in Sioux City, really trying to advocate for my community. You were talking about public service earlier. Um, let me tell you, it does take uh, quite a bit of dedication, quite a bit of time. But um, and, and to Daniel's point, too, I mean, you're putting yourself out there. You know what I mean? Like you're opening yourself up to a lot of judgment, a lot of criticism. And sometimes that can be challenging as well. So I struggle with all of those things myself. But at the end of the day, we're all still trying to chug along. You know what I mean? And and make a difference and leave a mark in this community. And so I really, I really hope that I'm able to do that and just excited to share some of my journey and talk with all of you about it here this morning. So let's start maybe with your life before the accident. What was it like growing up in Northwest Iowa? Well, I tell you what, I, um, I don't know. I was your average Northwest Iowa Okaboji kid, right? Like, um, some of the things that were most important to me were definitely working up around the lakes. I loved making my own money. So I worked at a lot of different restaurants up here. I would work at one during the day and then another one at night. And then when I had time off, um, some of the biggest things that were important to me were, uh, golf. I was, I loved golfing. I actually wanted before my accident, I wanted to be a teaching pro. Um, and so I really was excited about that. I was on a scholarship to play at Morningside. And so I was looking forward to that, but I also loved wakeboarding, uh, just a chance to get out on the water and do some of that. But then, I mean, you kind of have an insight into my life, um, from my high school days of what, what could have been and what ended up being was I was super passionate about debate. Um, back when debate was like really in its heyday and like, um, at its peak in high schools across Iowa. And I know it's still alive and well, but I'm definitely not at the levels that maybe it once was. And so I was really big on the debate team. Um, I remember like my claim to fame, there's, uh, Ted Turner, a public forum. It's taken a couple different names, but I won the first tournament that was ever held in Iowa in that style. Um, and so that was kind of exciting. That was held up here in Okaboji. And so. That, that's like a little sneak peek, a little snapshot into my life pre-accident growing up in Northwest Iowa, for sure. Golf, wakeboarding, debate, working, busy as always. I was on the debate club. I was terrible at it, though. Oh, I loved it. <laughs> yeah, it was good. It was fun. I loved it. And as long as you were willing to put yourself out there, write a speech, do some research, hey, you could make it. You yeah. know what I mean? And that pr- probably prepared you for what you're doing now would be my guess. Very much so. Very much so. The ability to be comfortable with public speaking, with doing a little bit of research, with um, seeing multiple sides of an argument. That's something that I've really um, seen that has been paid off in my life is really the ability to see 
uh, maybe an issue from multiple angles because a lot of times when you're dealing with the city council, undoubtedly uh, people are going to be unhappy with you no matter what decision you make. And so uh, I got to be able to see multiple sides of an issue and, and at the end of the day, be able to put my head on a pillow at night and know that what I did was for the betterment of our community. And so it's one of those where I, I definitely utilize that skill set that I learned way back in high school, back on the debate team, kind of analyzing different arguments and looking up evidence to support my claims. So definitely look back on those times fondly. I loved it very much. And and so did you love it, Anna? I mean, you're saying you weren't very good or, or you didn't think you were very good, but did you love doing it? I, I did love doing it. And so my dad was... Um part of the coaching team as well, in addition to my oh, yeah. high school teacher. So, um, but, but it was, it was always a good time. It's just our debate team was not so great. We got a new debate coach in. It's a long story. Again, probably the reason why I could never run for public office either, Alex. So Alex, so just before too, what is your family like? Um, so you, um, have brothers, sisters, do you have? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so very, um, uh, I guess, traditional nuclear family, if you will, right? Like mom, dad, and younger sister um, uh, growing up. And so I grew up uh, when I was young, young, um, up until eighth grade. I actually was um, raised in Ocheedon, Iowa. Claim to fame, highest point in Iowa. That's what's up. And it's called the Ocheedon Mound, if that tells you anything <laughs> about the topography, the topography of Iowa, right? The Ocheedon Mound, the highest point in Iowa. But um, my dad was the sheriff of Osceola County. And um, so I remember growing up, knocking doors for his campaign, helping him with that, hanging out um, in the jail or the police department um, area and just kind of um, really enjoying that. He actually would then, after an election, go on to um, get out of the get out of law enforcement for a brief time and owned our own gas station where it was my first job of pumping gas, running out, wiping people's windshields down and pumping their gas for tips. Um, I remember doing that when I was young. And then my mom's family, um, I, my grandpa, when he came back from the war, uh, started his own asphalt company and was kind of an entrepreneur. And so my mom helped with that family business, um, almost all of my upbringing. And, and then my little sister, of course, her and I are um, still very close and she moved far away. She actually lives in Columbia, South Carolina. So I miss her very much, but she comes up and visits, visits and we try to go down and visit her as much as we can, but she's thriving down there. And um, at times, especially in the winter, rubbing in the weather mm. of 70 degree days in the, in the winter. But yeah, that's um, a beautiful area. So Alex, yeah. we're listening to your childhood. You're growing up on the mound. You're dreaming about being a golf pro teacher, the debating, and all these dreams that you have for yourself that uh, of what's going to happen in your future. And then in 2004, your life changes. Yeah, quite dramatically, honestly. Um, you know, I had just started college. I just started at Morningside and uh, was so like beyond excited for uh, the opportunity that was before me and what I was doing, the friends I was making, the experiences I was having, the classes I was trying to attend, you know what I mean? Uh, and so everything was everything was going very well. And then a couple of weeks into my freshman year, I had met some friends and they were going to be going up to Okaboji for a family reunion. And so uh, they definitely, they invited me and were saying, oh my gosh, you have to come up here. You have to show us Okaboji. And so I knew that uh, my mom was probably missing me at that point in time. So I figured I better head on up there. And so went up with to Okaboji with them 
and um, kind of just hung out at the house for a little bit before meeting them up at the resort. Um, we did the whole traditional Okaboji reun- family reunion thing. You can imagine it. Just close your eyes. Right. We had a bonfire with s'mores. There was the uncle playing the ukulele or something off in the corner. We were singing Kumbaya. Um, it was a, it was a great, great time. And then around midnight, we decided that we probably should go swimming one last time. So while the girls were inside changing, I went out with their little brother out onto the dock and a gust of wind came up and it knocked my hat off, um, into the water. And so I was about 150 feet out in the stock quite a ways. Um, out on this dock. And so I dove in to retrieve it and would find out later that it was 18 inches deep, um, 18 inches deep where the water, where I dove in. And so I remember the moment, um, hearing my neck snap and not really having any idea what that meant. Um, I had never broken a bone up until that point and just didn't know. And I remember laying face down in the water, in shock, you know, I mean, my body wasn't moving, wasn't reacting. And, um, yeah, I just laid there kind of motionless. And I remember thinking to myself, like, you got to start swimming. You got to start swimming. And, and I couldn't. And then I remember getting really calm, having a sense of calm come over me and just said, you know, like I had really led a good life up until that point. Like I, I remember thinking like, gosh, it's been a good run. And, and I just let go. And I remember letting go and everything going black and, and I not knowing what that meant. And meanwhile, topside, the younger brother that was with me out on the dock thought I was joking. And so he was hollering at me in the water before ultimately running in to get the girls that we were with. And so we ran in and got them. And luckily they were both trained lifeguards And so, um, one of them was able to run out and flip me over. And then they were able to, um, both give me rescue breaths and give me breathing again before calling the, calling the ambulance and the paramedics. And, and I, of course, was blacked out during this entire time. The first memory I have is coming to and seeing one of the paramedics that I knew. Um, because once we moved to Okaboji, my dad actually got back in law enforcement. Um, and so he was a police officer. So I knew this paramedic really well. And just remember looking up at him and just kind of saying like, wow, I, I really screwed up. I really screwed up. And he of course was reassuring and we got to the hospital. And, um, the next memory that I have is getting ready to board, um, life flight. Actually, they were putting me on a helicopter to fly me to Sioux city for emergency surgery. And I remember ironically enough, the paramedic's wife, um, she was also a paramedic. And so when he saw it was me, he called her and said, you might want to come to the hospital. And so she rushed up to me and was hysterical and crying and telling me it was going to be okay. And, um, and then I was taken by helicopter down to Sioux city where, um, where then, I mean, it's my memory is really spotty. You know what I mean? I mean, I remember the, I remember the surgeon walking around. It's very Grey's Anatomy esque. You know, like looking up at the bright white light, hearing the surgeon walk around me, um, talking about the procedure that they're going to perform and um, and then being whisked off to surgery. You know, my parents and our pastor saying one last prayer and and then being take off to surgery before um, ultimately I would have that. And then a couple weeks there in the ICU and and then ultimately I, I decided that I would go to Craig Hospital 
out in Denver, um, where I would do some rehab for what amounted to six months. I mean, three months of which were on bed rest. You know, I really, I did struggle and continue to struggle with pressure ulcers. And, and I mean, really, I mean, it's kind of the long answer, Anna, to, I mean, that's what my, my life, the, the trajectory of my life and what I had envisioned for my future just dramatically changed in that instance. And, and I had to learn how to use my body, how to navigate this world as someone with a disability, um, as someone that uses a power chair and, uh, um, it's been a journey to say the least. I mean, that was in 2004. And so, you know, it's just time flies and, and we're all just trying to navigate this world, whether disabled or otherwise. I mean, and so I've learned a lot of great things along the way. And afterwards, after that six months, I determined that I wanted to go back to school. You know, um, that's, that was ultimately the path that I thought I needed to take to climb that ladder. Um, and so, and to get back on my feet, so to speak. And so I, I went back to school and obviously I wasn't going to be a golf pro. Um, I think we can all agree on that. So I decided, Hey, maybe I can own the golf course, started studying business and my heart just wasn't in that anymore. And so, as Daniel said, I ended up studying political science and global history, um, went on to get my master's, lived and worked in Washington, became really inspired by politics and and thinking about the ability to make a difference in people's lives, ran for office myself, you know, started working at my alma mater and and ultimately like just living every day trying to make a difference for the world around me. Like I think we all have an inherent responsibility um to try to leave the world in a better place than than we found it. And for me, um, the inspiration that I found was really that in all those people that have impacted my life. I mean, you look at doctors, nurses, therapists, caregivers. I mean, the people that dedicate their entire life to making my quality of life better. And, and so if I, if anything, I owe those people a debt of gratitude. And I figure like the best way that I can do that is trying to, to impact policy, to do different things, to be able to give back and, and really try to propel my community forward. And so that's what I'm trying to do. It's a, it's a different journey. It's something I never expected, but, um, but here we are and we try to make the most of it. I did want to ask about Craig hospital, just cause I hear a lot about Craig hospital in Denver. That's a um, hospital. So tell us a little bit just quickly about those six months that you're there, the first three months, what's going through your head and what are you learning? And if someone has to go to Craig Hospital, what advice do you have uh, for them if they ever experience that? Yeah. No, it was it was like a game changer. I know that word is used like far too often, but it was. For me, it was such an inspiration. Like just the atmosphere, the culture, everything, the people of Craig Hospital are very inspiring. And what I loved about that, especially in the first three months, was just the sense of community and, um, I mean, you, you're meeting other people that are experiencing similar injuries, um, whether they're higher or lower level than you. Um, for me, it just felt like, look, you're not alone. You're not alone. And like, that was such a big thing. Like now upon reflection, um, that just that, that totally changed my outlook. You know what I mean? That it's like, look, you're not alone. You can do this. There are other people that are killing it, that are doing great. 
You know what I mean? Like you can strive for that. And so I remember those first few months just trying to figure out and navigate mentally, emotionally, um, what this was going to be like and just drawing on the strength of those around me. What I loved about Craig Hospital is just the, um, the uplifting attitude, um, and, and the overall atmosphere of the place like Craig Hospital. I mean, like they had, you're having fun. You're out, you're engaging with other patients. Your therapists are a blast. Like they are doing their best, um, to get you up on your feet, even if you physically can't. And so it's like just really that inspiration that I needed at that time, the team that we had surrounding me. I mean, like a perfect little example, right? Like even just the way that they celebrate holidays and giving you that sense of normalcy. Like I remember Halloween, right? Like I had just gotten there in September. Well, in around Halloween, everyone dresses up. The doctors come to your bedside all dressed up. You know what I mean? And it's like, even something as small as that was just like, I knew that was the place for me. And so like just the, the, the attitude, the atmosphere, the energy that is surrounding that hospital, it's something that I will continue to talk to people about and continue to sing their praises because it inspired me to expect more of myself, um, to know that this injury was not going to define me. And so it really inspired me to say, okay, well, what can I do? You know, like what is there, whether it was therapeutic recreation or occupational therapy or all of those things, like expect more of yourself. Like then, I mean, it took me over 10 years, Anna, but I finally started driving again, you know, and it was through the inspiration of people that I was seeing at Craig hospital, like that they were driving, you know, they got back behind a wheel or maybe they started pursuing their passions again, right? Like whether that was water sports, I haven't braved that yet, but, um, I mean, I did go scuba diving. I went out, I went, um, hunting, you know, I got back into hunting. I mean, if you're from Iowa, there are a lot of hunters, avid hunters. And so that was something I got back into. And it was just like, there's such a big world out there. And there's so many things and programs that, um, have been made adaptive, um, so that people with disabilities can participate and they can feel fully included. And for me, that's what that hospital, um, instilled in me. And so, um, if you're looking at going out there, I would love to answer any of those questions, talk to you about it. I honestly, and this is not an exaggeration, probably text, um, some of my therapists and my nurses from out there at least once a month, um, checking in. And we're talking like more than a decade since I was first out there. I go back almost every single year. Last year was the first year I missed, um, of not going out to Craig just for a reevaluation, just to, I mean, just, a checkup. You know what I mean? You got to check the oil. You got to make sure that your car's running well. And so I, I always go out there and make sure that my body's in tip top shape. So it's, it's a wonderful place. It truly is. So I'm curious to know how, okay. So you came from this really supportive Craig hospital environment, and then you had to transition back to regular life. How was that? How did people treat you differently? What kind of adjustments did you have to make? Oh my gosh. Good question. And Meredith, let me tell you, it was terrifying, terrifying. I mean, you go from a hospital. I've, I've joked about this before, but you go from a hospital where everyone's supportive. Everyone's understanding. You look around a ton of people are using wheelchairs, right? Like it's the norm. You go up to a door, the door automatically opens. 
you need something, you're in your hospital bed, you push a button, someone comes and asks what they can help you with. I tried getting my mom to install one of those buttons. That didn't work, right? Like all of these things were so different and like just scary. And gosh, like you would think like they were, you were filled with excitement to come home. You know what I mean? From a hospital environment, but it was like the hospital had become a comfort blanket, you know? And so going home, then you're just like, what does this world that is really not accessible look like? You know, like my parents, we were lucky enough. We had to install an elevator in our house, like so that I could utilize multiple floors. We had to get a van that was accessible I mean, and you want to talk finances and like funding, like this stuff is expensive. And so it's like um, the community rallied behind me in a way that I never imagined, held fundraisers in my name, like all of these things to try to offset costs for my parents. But it was scary too, in the sense that it's like not only the physical environment and navigating that, but also the emotional stuff. Like, I found myself oddly, and I think that people with disability might might be able to relate to this and that. It's like I found myself comforting my friends. You know what I mean? Like I was talking to them about my injury and making sure that they felt comfortable and understood and um and weren't afraid to ask questions or or talk openly about things. And yeah, it was like, it was just a wild transition and it was tough in the sense that it's like, well, I can't hop in their car, you know, and like go for a ride or I can't just go over to their house because they have those things in the front called stairs. You know what I mean? So it's like navigating all of that was, was super challenging and, and just, um, overwhelming at times and frustrating and, um, I mean, now looking back over the years that have passed, like I've definitely learned how to better navigate some of that, but that transition time, Meredith, like that was, that was a big moment, you know, and I'm a super optimistic, like happy go lucky guy. So a lot of times I can, um, uh, uh, put on a good face and, and get through those things, but there were challenges along the way too, very much so emotionally and, and just frustrating at times, but. So Daniel, but, hey, let me no, just ask you. So Alex was talking about not feeling alone at the hospital and about some of the challenges. Can you relate to any what, of what he's saying? Or did you have a question? Um, the difficulty in that is that there's a kind of there's still a gap between uh, physical and mental disability in terms of sort of being able to explain to someone like the comfort with which they can ask questions about each other. Because when it's a physical disability, it's something that you'll probably notice immediately. You come in in a power chair or something, that's an immediate difference. And that's something that, as Alex touched upon, it's something that you may be sort of too self-aware of. You you don't want to kind of go too forward in one direction. You don't want to ask something that would be considered a stupid question or something that would be insensitive. But with a mental disability... Sometimes it's not always that visible. Like, that's one of the blessings that I have for being high-functioning. In most circumstances, if I just keep my mouth shut and sit somewhere, no one's going to notice something's different. It's only when we actually start conversing and I have to say, oh, if I'm focusing on something really intently, chances are I'm going to have to close my eyes when we speak. Or 
oh, if there's something I say that is interpreted in a way that's not meant to be interpreted, that might just be because the my brain is not uh, the typical one or something. So it's not something I can relate to as deeply, but I still definitely understand that. And as for a question, we sort of touched upon this a little bit, but you've talked about how you were able to speak pretty candidly with your friends and your family about, okay, this is what I'm going through. This is something that you shouldn't be afraid of talking about. But when you're running for office, when you're running for any political position and you're in the eyes of the public, you're in the eyes of strangers, I think it's a lot easier for people to just sort of have that immediate judgment and say, oh, this person's not fit to run for office because they're in a chair or because of whatever other reason. So was it more difficult for you to sort of have to uh, justify yourself as a worthy candidate in their eyes? Yeah. Gosh, that's a good question, Daniel. Um, I mean, I think, I think a couple things as far as when I was running for office, a couple things worth noting. Um, number one, is that oftentimes if people did question my capacity to serve, um, they certainly didn't do it to my face. You know, um, they weren't necessarily coming to me or saying those things to my face, but I, I'm sure they were, I'm sure they were questioned. I'm sure, um, there were those things being said about me. But number two, the other thing that I think maybe is more important, um, was that I had done my best to prove myself, my ability before putting my name on a ballot. You know, like I, I talk to people about that all the time. It's like, I didn't just decide, you know what I should do? I should run for public office. Like that's what I should do. And then just jump into it. What I did was I tried to ingrain myself in the community. You know, I served on public boards. I, I reached out, I served on city commissions you know, that were, that were put forth for the city and to be able to serve in that capacity. I reached out to nonprofits that I was really passionate about. I, I got organized and involved with them. I volunteered for them. Um, and then ultimately served on their board or served in leadership capacities. I did the same for governor appointed boards, right? Like I serve on the state rehabilitation council. Um, some of those opportunities because I wanted to prove to my community that was around me, like I have value. And I truly am able to give back in these different capacities and have a voice worth listening to. And so for me, like it was, it was really putting in the time, putting in the work and the effort in those years before I decided to run for office. Right. So, um, I moved back in 2012 and was running for office in 14 and 17 and stuff like that. But by then, I mean, I had served on a number of different boards and commissions and was saying, like, the reason I want to serve my community is because I hear what they're complaining about. I hear their dreams, their aspirations, and I share them. And I want to try to be a vocal piece for that. And so um, I don't think that people were as questioning of my ability because I could say, look at all these instances. Look at this where I, I – rose to the occasion, you know, where I was able to serve in this capacity. I took a leadership position. I'm doing this and proved my worth. So whether or not we feel that we need to do that, 
Um, it was something that I thought, and, and anyone looking to run for public office, it's seriously one of the the biggest pieces of advice that I can give is if you want to run for office, like start by holding leadership positions in your community, get involved, volunteer, show that you have an interest rather in, in serving rather than just a title. Cause I think some people chase a title, you know what I mean? Like they want to feel that power. Um, they want to do that. And, and that's just not me. Like I, I got into it because I just wanted to make a difference in my community, a community that's, that's done a lot for me. And so, I mean, Daniel, like I, I do think those conversations probably happened, but I, I did my best to try to deter them or to try to quell their fears, you know, that, that I wasn't going to be able to serve in that capacity. And, and, and if people are going to have those thoughts or those conversations, like that's on them, they, they haven't met me obviously, um, nor have they had a conversation. And I think sometimes that's what we need to do is, is quiet our mouths and open our ears um, and just, just kind of listen to the voices that are around us. Um, because certainly um, whether it's myself or yourself or anyone else, um, you have something to offer and a perspective that maybe is not being shared. And and I thought that that's something that I definitely brought to the table. Yeah, you do. So if you're just tuning in, you're listening to I Am Able Iowa, and we're talking with Alex Waters, who is a social connector, community advocate, and my favorite positivity amplifier. Whoop, whoop. Whoop, whoop. Alex, I love it. You better believe it. (laughs) So, Meredith, you have a question, but I had to put that in there. So in case you're just listening and figuring, (laughs) thinking, what am I listening to? You're listening to Alex Waters. Yeah. So, Alex, let's talk about your motivational speaking. Um, What was that first event like? And what do you talk about? You have, oh, my gosh, you can't imagine, Meredith. Like, I'm telling you, I... I, we were talking earlier about debate, right? So like, I, I like public speaking. Um, I enjoy it. Um, I'm pretty comfortable because of my background in debate, all of those things, right? Well, um, I will tell you. So let, let's go back before like the big first public event. I remember very vividly the first time I was asked to give a speech in college. Okay. After my accident, freshman year one of the first classes and I'm asked to give a speech and I'm like, I got this. Like, come on. I was born to give these speeches. Like I got this. I've been trained. Like I am ready. Right. Well, um, I, I rehearsed it. I had all of this stuff. I was prepared. I got up before the class and I'm there and I'm in front of the class and I'm getting ready. And I start with my intro and I'm going. And then all of a sudden about halfway through, I'm like, wow, I am really getting lightheaded and I am just going to power through and I am getting lightheaded. And, um, all of a sudden, like my breathing is slowing and I'm like, what is happening? Like all of a sudden I feel the blood like draining from my head. Like I am way too excited. And, um, so it's one of those things where on a power chair, you might've seen people, they can tilt back. So I slowly start tilting my chair back, trying to get the blood to go back to my head. And I'm just like, okay, I got this. No one's noticing that I'm giving a speech and tilting my chair back. Surely no one's paying attention to that. And so I'm slowly tilting back, still still giving the speech. And I get all the way to where my chair is like tilted back. I'm almost like laying flat and I just stop talking. Because if I don't stop talking, I'm going to full out pass out. 
Like all the blood is gone from my head. I can't even think. I don't know what's happening. And the professor is a friend of mine. And he comes over and he goes, Alex, you doing okay? And I'm like, uh-uh, uh-uh, I am not doing okay. And so like I slowly have to tilt up and wheel myself out into the hallway, compose myself, and then decide like, okay, I can get back in this. I can do this. I can do this. And I went back in and I gave the rest of the speech. Lesson learned that it's like I get way too excited about things and I can definitely like I have a really long torso and so it's like the blood was just not pumping where I needed it to pump. And so it was not getting up to my head fast enough. And everything was like, look, we're slowly shutting you down. Like, I, yeah, good luck giving the speech because you're done. And um, so that was my first time after my accident. And now I actually have to wear a corset that assists not only with my posture, but also like keeping my blood circulating and pumping and it just like um, my blood pressure issues that I've struggled with because my blood pressure is low already and it just plummeted. So that was the first time post-injury that I tried giving a speech in public in front of a class, nearly passed out, had to go out into the hallway, compose myself before getting back and rocking it. Yeah, that was that. Um, then fast forward like probably five years later, when I came back and I actually gave a speech to the incoming class of Morningside College. Um, and it was a, it was a class about think of it almost like the Dr. Seuss book, like, Oh, the places you will go, right? Like very much so, um, that of just talking about how, um, the experiences that you have will shape you, the friendships you have around you, um, will impact you the rest of your life. The, the changes that I went through, the things that I noticed obviously was praying that they would never experience a life altering injury like mine, but just saying like, you're going to experience changes. And I remember being so nervous, um, going out for doing that. I think that I actually had a beer, um, right before going out there, I was like, I need to calm these nerves. Like I need to ease into this. And so having an adult beverage prior to going out on stage definitely assisted with that. But, um, but I had my own hype team, with me. Um, and so they were, they were pumping me up and went out there and, and I, I assure you it was, um, nothing life-changing. At least I don't know. I, I look back on a video of it and I'm just like, how in the world is that? Were these my talking points and the speech that I gave, but Hey, nonetheless, um, there have been more, there have been subsequent speeches. So I must've been doing something right. And um, now I just really enjoy uh, talking to anyone that will listen, any invitations that I get. Um, I want to I want to make sure to try to accommodate because I think you have forums like this where you just really preach and talk about understanding, a better understanding of each other, of our common um, experience, uh, learning from one another, and um, and understanding that we're not alone. Back to what we were saying earlier. I mean. No matter how much it feels like I have my life together um, or things are going well or I've established this um, sense of purpose, I mean, gosh, there are days that I struggle. And so it's like whether it's having those conversations, doing public speaking, telling people they're not alone, talking about my struggles um, and maybe hoping that they can relate and draw some inspiration or perhaps some strength um, from my story is ultimately my hope. So since that first speech, I've gone on to have um, quite a few more. I've been lucky and blessed and never really solicited any of them or marketed myself. I threw a website out there recently 
Um, but need to update that and haven't really leaned into that space. Um, but it is one of those things where it's a goal and aspiration. I wrote like half a book. I need to finish that book, um, and just be able to do more with it because I really do think, um, if, if anything we have in this world, we have that sense of community. And so I want to learn more about you, um, and hope through learning more about me that maybe you can find your own inherent strength. So you do a lot of advocacy work um, and our, I am able, I will volunteer reporter, Samantha Edwards put together a couple questions and um, she thinks that our listeners might be interested in. So I'm just going to share one of those with you about advocacy. So she asks, what yeah. advice do you have for our listeners who are trying to be an advocate um, slash an influencer in today's society? So you talk a little bit about your work as an advocate and uh, some advice for our listeners. Yeah, well, this is not going to be anything earth shattering. Um, I wish that it was, but it is. Um, and I wish that it was, um, uh, my own original advice, but I, many people have, have said this before me, but I think it bears repeating is you find your voice, find your voice and tell your story because there is such inherent strength in your story. And I tell you what, as an elected official, there is power. There is power in your story. And if you talk to elected officials about your struggles, about things that you see that should be improved, policy can change. Things can change. They want to make adjustments. They want to make life better, um, no matter how frustrating it can be and how slow the process seems. And I am telling you, I, as one that has tried to push for changes that seem very common sense to me. Um, and then to not see them come to fruition, to see bills not being passed, to see bills not even being debated, it's frustrating. But it doesn't mean that we give up. You know what I mean? It doesn't mean that you stop fighting. It doesn't mean that you stop telling your story. Because the more you can do that, the more you can share it through the written word of writing letters to the editor, the more you can get on forums of video and sharing your story. Now in the day, day and age of social media, I mean, gosh, being able to get out there and have that out there where you are sharing what you are struggling with, what is going on and what you see as a problem. Um, I think that it can really, it can catch fire and, and really not only inspire those around you to join you, um, but also hopefully reach uh, the powers that be or people that can make changes um, and really adjust the system and, and make it better for everyone. I mean, the way that I look at it is, I'm not the only person that's disabled in Iowa. I'm not the only person that struggles with caregivers. I'm not the only person that struggles with um, different parts of my body, right? Or even healthcare in general or managed care or what have you, right? Like I'm not the only person. And so if we band together with different organizations across the state, I'm inspired by the work that people are doing in different organizations. If we all collectively use our voice um, to amplify that message, real change can happen. And so if you're looking at your situation, you're saying this is wrong and this needs to change, not only for myself, but for those others around me, I would, I would encourage you to use your voice as an advocate, to, to find your voice, find that inherent strength. Um, and whether you're more comfortable writing it down or you're more comfortable speaking into a microphone, it doesn't matter. Like, um, both of those things have, have power. 
So, Daniel, so, you're leaning in. I feel like you've got a burning question. It's more just an agreement with that. And I know, as Alex said, it's not something revolutionary, but I've uh, witnessed the power of storytelling and its ability to grow uh, empathy with an audience, or at the very least, just have that attachment, that essence of humanity, because I've done things like even something is relatively um, inconsequential as stand-up comedy is something that can have a lasting effect on a person because stand-up comedy in no small part is storytelling. It uses a lot more uh, pathos than any other element, but it's something that makes people listen to you. It's something that makes people think about what you're talking about. It's something that opens you up to people, makes you seem more human. And that's sort of that human to human connection. What I hadn't considered that uh, you brought up, Alex, is how other people, after listening to a story, they don't just tell their own story to other people who will listen, but they echo their own voice to the people in power. Because I think we've seen a lot of instances of these brave individuals who tell their stories, who try to open up and have that aspect of humanity towards certain political figures. And every time nothing happens from that, we we feel this sense of, oh, there's no point in doing so. They, They are immune to the effect of the human body, the the human mind, the human story. But I think if there are enough voices, not just signing on a, on a, um, uh, what's the word for it? Like a it's petition. Or a petition, a- thank you. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was thinking contract, on a petition. But having their own story saying, I've seen this too. This isn't me just signing on for the sake of putting my name somewhere. This is something I've borne witness to. This is something I want to actively change as well. We can't all be leaders, but we can all, at the very least, be humans. And I think that's something maybe we're not harnessing enough. Yeah, that's beautiful. I agree. So, Alex, what do you want to change? If you could have a magic wand and had all the power in the world, what change do you want to see? Oh, my gosh. There are a lot. Um, there's just a lot of things that I think we can improve policy on, right? Like, I mean, I'll, I'll touch on just a few, right. That I think should be easy, that I think we should be able to have the conversation, um, surrounding. And so first and foremost, um, I'll do one that I think is overarching that I think is large, that I understand is a large issue to tackle. And you have to, we have to navigate that of what that's going to look like. Right. And that's the caregiver shortage the caregiver shortage. I think like that is one of the biggest things that we need to be talking about more. And here's why. So not only because as a person with a disability, such as myself, I rely on care. Um, I rely on care to get me up in the morning so that I'm able to wear this shirt and this uh, sport coat uh, for all of you so that I'm not shirtless. Uh, And then I also rely on care uh, to put me to bed at night. And to help me get into bed. And so it's not, it's not a great deal of care. Some people require around the clock care. So other people require less or more. It doesn't matter. 
right? Like, so whether you have a disability or you're aging, right? Like that's the other thing that I try to really talk to elected officials about is I'm not just talking about improving this for disability policy sake. I'm telling you the state of Iowa is aging. And if we want to take care of these baby boomers, if we want to take care of our parents, our grandparents, they are going to want to live in their home right? They're not going to want to all move into a nursing home or an assisted living place because those are understaffed already. And so if we want to meet the need of those individuals, our aging population, as well as those with disabilities that need that caregiving workforce, we need to start addressing that. We need to lean into that. We need to incentivize that. We need to encourage that. We need to upskill our caregiving, right? Like my mom has basically taken on the role of caregiver. My grandpa moved in with us for the last year of his life. He was blind um, and required more, um, more immediate care. And so rather than going to a nursing home, she quit her job, became his full-time caregiver. Not everyone is able to do that. Then with COVID um, and with really the shortages that I was experiencing, she became my caregiver and now has provided all of my care over the last year. Not everyone is in that position where they have a parent, a grandparent, a sibling, anyone that's able to do that. And so if you don't incentivize, if you don't encourage, if you don't build that workforce, you are going to have a shortage. You are going to have a real problem on your hands where you did not do enough to really allow aging Iowans to live with dignity in their home or to even allow people with disabilities such as myself to get to work in the morning. And that's what I talk about is it's not just like a quality of life thing. Like I pay taxes, right? Like I'm getting up in the morning and I'm working hard, right? And so I'm feeding into the system. And that's something that the state should have an inherent, not only responsibility, but really feel the the urgency of doing something about and making sure that I can get to work and making sure that we're building a workforce, a care workforce um, that can meet that need for individuals. And so I think we need to tackle that. You see the Biden administration signaling like an, uh, um, a real inherent, like a concerted effort, um, to invest in the caregiving workforce, right? Like that infrastructure bill. Um, that's something we need to take advantage of. We need to put party politics aside and say, this is something that we need to take advantage of and invest in. So that's number one, right? Is like what I would say we need to tackle with a sense of urgency is the caregiving workforce and really start addressing some of that because there are far too many examples to David's point or Daniel's point, sorry, about um, where we have that common sense of humanity that it's like, I know there are people in Iowa that are staying in bed for 48 hours on end, right? That don't have a caregiver to get them up into their chair. Or once they're in their chair, don't have the ability to go to bed at night. And that's a tragedy, right? We need to address that. The other things are are kind of easier, um, I think. Um, and I'll just use my life anecdotally, right? Like um, I really am working hard um, and, and really have tried to find promotions, trying to work and like w- climb the corporate ladder, so to speak. And now I've reached the glass ceiling um, where I'm on Medicaid for the employed, MEPD, and they have a cliff effect where as soon as you reach a certain level um, and MEPD, the only thing they pay for me, by the way, because I have private insurance is my caregivers getting up in the morning and going to bed at night, right? And a nurse three times a week, right? That's what MEPD is paying for. And that cost remains stagnant. Um, but 
I'm at the, I'm at the cliff effect where if I make $1 extra, they literally take everything away from me and I lose all of my benefits. Then I'm paying for caregivers myself, which can be upward of $10,000 a month, right? Like that's not outrageous. Um, that's not inflammatory or exaggerated. It's telling you the truth. Like we are talking hard costs of what people might have to bear and what that burden could look like. And so we need to start a graduated scale. Um, look to the model of Colorado. Colorado has almost double the income limit that Iowa has. And it's just a graduated scale. I'll pay more into the system, right? Like I will pay a premium um, every month to be a part of that and still enjoy MEPD. But we need a gradual scale because we need to incentivize people with disabilities to enter the workforce. We need to make sure that they're not being deterred by making more money. You know, and I think that that's ridiculous. And then the other policy that goes along with that is what's called a household of one, where when you're looking at disability policy, when you're looking at um, these benefits and these waivers and these programs, only look at the person with the disability. Don't look at the, maybe their family situation because who knows where that individual could go. You might have a parent. And if you're literally looking at that parent's income, what happens when they pass away, right? Then all of a sudden that safety net is gone. And you should have been looking at just the person with a disability the whole time because the situation I'm encountering now is I recently became engaged, um, very excited, um, but the situation, thank you, the situation has become that we can't get married in Iowa because as soon as we do, her income counts towards mine. And then just like the cliff effect, I lose all of my benefits. Why would we want to do that? Why would we want to legally get married? And do that if, if it's just going to kick me off all of my benefits. And I think these, like, these limits were set decades ago, right? And just have never been updated. And so it's really time to update disability policy in the state of Iowa and across the country. We need to collaborate and work better to do these things. I mean, these are just three examples, Anna, where it's like, gosh, this is not rocket science. This is not a red issue. This is not a blue issue. This is um, a, the, the state of Iowa issue. This is the United States. Um, this is an issue that needs to be addressed. And I think there, there are common sense solutions um, that allow all of us to reach our true potential um, and really uh, be able to live live a more fulfilled life. And that's what I want to do is I want to talk to elected officials about these situations and how we can improve them. Congratulations. And, uh, and I was talking to you, Alex, before the show, um, about a week ago about one of our borrowers who is going to have to get divorced to get the care that he needs. He's been married 30 years, um, and we'll have to get divorced to be able to have him be able to die with dignity. And it is tragic. How does that make sense? And that's where it's like you talk to elected officials and you explain the situation. You explain the solution. It's not just coming to you with a problem and saying, this is the problem. Here is a possible solution. Help me figure this out. Because stories like that, Anna, should not be happening. Well, and I think it speaks to the power of the story, right? It's not... It's not a whole bunch of statistics. It's not a whole bunch of numbers. It's putting an actual experience of a human being in front of someone else. And stories have power, just like um, we talked about earlier, how important it is for us to participate in the dialogue. Yeah. 
I can't believe how exactly. fast time goes. We've got about three minutes, which is hard to believe. So, Daniel and uh, Meredith, I want you to ask your questions. And, Alex, you have to answer every single question in about 45 seconds. Good luck to you, yeah. my friend. No doubt. <laughs> okay, so Rap- I'm going to take one of Samantha's questions. And she says, what is a random talent slash backyard listeners don't know about you? Now, maybe our listeners don't know you, but give us something interesting, Alex. Oh my gosh. Um gosh, I don't know of uh, a random talent or anything. Um I still love drawing. I like I still love that. I can interweave a pencil into my hand. And I love doing that. I'm an avid wee bowler. Um that's something you probably didn't know that like I love putting that handle into like my hand. I find that very accessible and like um, inclusive, which I appreciate. And so, uh, an avid wee bowler that most people probably don't know about that. That's for sure. Um, mine has the risk of sounding insensitive. I want to preface that by saying, I don't mean it that way. No worries. But, um, in terms of your engagement, I think a lot of people have the very, you know, stereotypical get down on one knee circumstance (laughs) for, for you being in a power chair, like, when if, assuming you were the one to do the proposing, like, was it a bit more difficult or awkward to sort of bring up the topic just because there wasn't that moment of like, oh, it's going to happen? Yeah, this stereotypical like person down on one knee, right? There wasn't that. Um, well, until I brought the ring out, I'm pretty sure she didn't even believe that it was real. Like, she was just like, yeah, no, I don't even believe this is happening. Had I been down on one knee, I think she would have understood the gravity of the situation, right? Like, I suppose there was that. But um, no, I I think that once she saw the ring and understood that it was actually happening, then then it kind of hit her. But I think that we do have those things where... Um, you stereotype in your mind of what something is going to look like or what it has to be. And we need to shatter those stereotypes. Like, come on, like really, what is, what is that? And what, what symbolism do you really need by getting down on one knee to hold up a ring? Like, no, we're on a level playing field. I can sit in my chair, do the exact same thing. Like I'm professing my love to you. Hey, let's do this. You want to be a part of this journey? Um, and I'm just lucky that she said yes. Right. Again, Congratulations to the both of you. And on that note, our time is up. Alex, thank you so much for being with us today. This Uh, is KHOI Story City Ames. You've been listening to I Am Able Iowa. I Am Able Iowa airs the first and last Saturday morning of each month at 9 a.m. on KHOI 89.1 FM. You can also hear us streaming live on khoifm.org. On the Saturdays in the middle of the month, please tune in to Insight of the Mind with Julie Sexton, Carrie Lair, and Lacey Combs to provide valuable information about mental health issues. So please tune in next time to I Am Able Iowa on July 3rd. Samantha Edwards, who is our guest uh, question reporter, will be on with Kim Carwell from Easter Seals, Iowa. So I Am Able Iowa is produced by Able Up Iowa, headquartered right here in Ames. Our, um, our I Am Able Iowa music was composed and performed by Sean Ryan. So thank you for listening. Until next time, this is Anna Magnuson, Daniel Hedendorf, and Meredith Frankham saying... You are able, Iowa. Whoop, whoop. <laughs>